Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Why are there so many brands of Christianity? By popular vote. So each week on the intro course, we take a big question and look at it from different angles. We look at the Christian view, the secular view, maybe another world religion, and we look at one another's views. And we go, well, does the Christian view hold up any better to other views? Um, But it's a big question that everyone faces. Today we're going to look at actually a problem or a question that is internal only to Christianity itself. It's not a question everyone has. It's to do with the doubt, the confusion, and the complete fallout that many have with Christianity because of the church. For many people in Ireland, whilst there are a good number of self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics, I have many friends in that camp, the biggest camp of people are those who believe in some kind of God, but they don't believe in religion. Thousands of people in Ireland subscribe to the idea of being spiritual, but not religious. And I think that what most people mean by that is they have a certain, they might still hold on to some kind of belief about God. They probably hold on to some belief of some higher power. They certainly hold on to some moral framework by which they should live their lives. Some may even believe in Jesus. Some may even believe he died and rose from the dead, but they probably don't believe in organized religion and the church. At best, for many people, the church has been boring and old-fashioned. At worst, it's been harmful and hypocritical. Of course, like myself, there are exceptions to the rule. For some, church has been something positive. But I think as a generalization, the church in the mind of the modern person in Ireland has negative, there's negative connotations associated with it. But there's another reason people struggle with the church, and that is to do with the divisions that are found within her. And so people's argument against Christianity goes something like this. If Christianity were true, if Jesus really was who he said he was, and he started a church, why is the church, his body, such a mess. Not only do we have the atrocities of history, which is a topic for another night, maybe next week, but what about these divisions and splits? What about these denominations? And of course, the difference between the denominations, particularly Roman Catholicism and Protestantism here in Ireland, is not an intellectual problem alone. It's a deeply personal one that relates to the school you went to, the sports you played, the friends you made, the family traditions, whether you were part of this tribe or that tribe. The different brands of Christianity was something that somehow defined your identity and your upbringing. And as we know, in its most extreme form in Ireland, created terrible sectarianism, violence, and terror. But again, there's another group of people who are not so disaffected or hurt by the church as others. And maybe we're coming out of that really aggressive season in Ireland. So there's more genuine seekers and genuine believers who want to move on in their journey of faith and understand, well, what would it mean to have a relationship in Christ? But which church do I have to go to and choose from? And which church is right and which church is wrong? Do we say there's a right and wrong? Do I have to choose? How do I engage with the church if I wanted to? I wonder what category, if any, you put yourself in tonight. Why did you want me to speak on the topic of all the different brands of Christianity. Well, to answer the question, I'm actually going to do some history with you. And I'm going to look at the main two denominations, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And I'm going to look at, and it's very topical, why did Martin Luther, 500 years ago, on the 31st of October, uh, 1517, on the eve of All Saints' Day, start what is now called as the Reformation? What was the history behind this? And how could one German monk 
the son of a copper miner, caused such commotion that still has effect to this day. And in retelling the story, I want to bring about the key theological differences between the two denominations, which we can then discuss. I'm going to end with some practical tips and talk about how I personally navigate it, so hopefully that might help. Two, two disclaimers. Firstly, I am no church historian. I'm no expert on all these things. As on every other night of intro, I want you to share your knowledge, your experience, where you might know more than me. If I'm mistaken anywhere, you must let me know. Secondly, whilst I have my convictions and I was raised in a Protestant tradition, I want to be fair to all sides and let you decide. Uh, so please forgive me if you think I'm disparaging or I misrepresent. Again, that is not my intention. Uh, you'll have to be gracious to me if, that, if I do that. But let's start by talking about medieval Christianity. That's why you turned up tonight, isn't it? <laughs> you cannot understand the Reformation, the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, without understanding first what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century. And it's fair to say the 14th and 15th century were not the church's brightest centuries. And at the heart of Martin Luther's problem was this idea of indulgences. To understand how indulgences worked, you first of all have to understand the framework of your average parishioner who wants to gain salvation and be saved. And to understand that, you have to trace your roots back to Rome. The Apostle Peter, to whom Jesus has said, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, was thought to have been martyred and buried in Rome, allowing the church to be built quite literally upon him. And so, as once the Roman Empire had looked to Rome as its mother and Caesar as its father, now the Christian empire of the church looked to Rome as its mother and Peter's successor as a father, papa or pope. There was an exception to this when the Eastern Orthodox Church severed from the Church of Rome in the 11th century. But other than that, all Christians recognize Rome as their pope and, and, uh, Rome and the pope as their irreplaceable parents. Without father pope, there could be no church. And without mother church, there could be no salvation. The Pope was held to be Christ's vicar, representative on earth, and as such, he was the channel through whom all God's graces flowed. He had the power to ordain bishops, who in turn had the, who could ordain priests, and together they, the clergy, were the ones with the authority to turn on the taps of grace. These taps were the seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. You see, Roman Catholicism teaches that you're born in a state of sin, and through baptism, generally of infants, you're first admitted to the church to taste God's grace. Yet it's the mass that's really central to the whole system, where the belief is that each day, Christ has to be re-offered to God as an atoning sacrifice. Thus the sins of every day could be dealt with. This is the doctrine of transubstantiation that the bread and the wine quite literally become the body and blood of Christ and his sacrifice is being re-offered again for our sins. And it's not just for our sins. Back in the 14th and 15th century, masses were said for the dead. In fact, Rome had become kind of a, 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 a frenetic spiritual marketplace with people paying for masses to be said for, their, uh, for them and their deceased. Masses tended to be said at double speed, so fast not to be understood. In one church, two priests, even said Mass simultaneously at the same altar, because it was all about just making sure that the dead and yourself were sorted. And don't forget, Mass was in Latin, the language of the academia most could not understand. So the basic idea is that we receive God's grace through the seven sacraments, and in turn, we can therefore become better, more just, righteous, and a loving person 
and therefore acceptable to God. So grace for the Catholic Church is like a shot of adrenaline that boosts your spiritual performance. And righteousness is a God-given ability to live a righteous life if you work at it. Baptism gives you the kickstart. Mass gives you the boost along the way. But you have to live a righteous life to win God's approval. But how could you be ever sure that you were living a righteous enough life? In effect, God's grace came to those who tried their best. But again, how did you know if you were trying hard enough? That was the problem that Luther and many had. You see, the challenge to the average person is that Christ, if you know medieval history, was so holy and all terrible doomsday judge that no one could approach. And so many didn't approach him, and they prayed to Mary, his mother, who was a mediator, or to other saints like Mother Anne. When Luther is struck by lightning, and he prays to Mother Anne, and he says, if, if you save me, Mother Anne, I will, I will become a monk. And so he does because he believes he's been saved at that stage. So when Luther himself, who's now a, 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 a priest, said his first mass in 1507, he was so terrified to approach the judge of all the earth, he could barely do it. He was in anguish over it because he'd never approached Christ directly, but only through M Mary or Anne or another saint. So in 1215, the fourth Lateran Council came up with what it hoped, what, what, what it hoped would be a useful, this is before Luther, but to, to solve this problem, what hoped would be a useful aid for those seeking to be justified. It required all Christians on the pain of eternal damnation to confess their sins to a priest. And so we have this idea that to stay in a state of grace, you have to be doing the sacraments and confessing to a priest in which includes penance. And so this is the basic way, as I understand it, and I think most people do, that you, the, the Roman Catholic system works. You're born in a state of sin. You're baptized to bring you a state of grace, because baptism washes away your sin. But then you sin again, so you have to confess to a priest who gives you, you know, and you have to do penance, so you have to do good things and commit to certain things and all the rest, or take some kind of self-discipline. And then when you die, well, you're probably not in a state of grace. You're probably not fully justified by God. So you go to purgatory where you're then cleansed before you enter heaven. Now, the idea of confessing your sins to a priest, while meant to reassure you, in the end did the opposite for most people because you were never quite sure you'd confessed your sins fully or you were fully righteous. Had you remembered every sin? Had you confessed them all? Etc., etc. So that's why the idea of purgatory was introduced about, again, before this, but all part of this idea in the 1150s, which meant that if you did not die in a state of grace, a state of being righteous before God, most people didn't think they would be, you went to purgatory and had a second chance where all your sins were slowly purged so you could enter heaven fully righteous. The only exception was if you died of an unrepentant, of a mortal sin, such as murder, in which case you went straight to hell without the second chance of being purged. It was at this point that indulgences became a big thing. In fact, it wasn't too dissimilar from the tele-evangelists and the health and wealth preachers we might see on our TV screens today. If you pay a certain price, you can be financially prosperous and physically well. God will bless you in that way. As I said, in medieval Roman Catholicism, when a sinner went to confess to a priest, the priest would demand various acts of penance to be formed. Uh, and any sins for which penance had not been performed in this life would be dealt with in purgatory. But... The good news was that there were saints who had been so good that they had enough merit to enter heaven directly, bypass purgatory altogether, and they actually had more merit than was needed to get into heaven. This spare merit of theirs was kept in the church's treasury. 
in which only the Pope had the keys. The Pope could therefore give a gift of merit and indulgence to any soul he deemed worthy, fast-tracking that soul's path through purgatory or even leap purgatory altogether. Initially, these indulgences were offered for participation in the First Crusade, interestingly, but soon a gift of money was deemed penitential enough to merit an indulgence. It became increasingly clear in people's minds a bit of cash would secure spiritual bliss. And relics were a big part of the indulgence business. The church in Wittenberg in Germany, where Luther was placed as professor and priest later on, before he had his change of views, had a dazzling collection of relics, 19,000 in all, a wisp of straw from Christ's crib, a strand of his beard, a nail from his cross, etc., etc., to give respect and reverence, you know, veneration and worship to these relics was worth an indulgence of a hundred days, meaning the pious visitor to Wittenberg could top up more than 1,990,000 days off purgatory if they worshipped or and venerated all these relics. Well, anyway, it was this treasury of merits and the abuse around indulgences that really got Luther going. And a man called Tetzel who was in the parish next door to Luther, was funding a building project, a very famous building project, St. Rome's Basilica, which had fallen into disrepair because seven successive popes had gone to live in Avignon rather than Rome, and it had been neglected, and the new pope wanted to rebuild it, and he needed money, and indulgences were the way to rebuild it. So Johann Tetzel's famous jingle from history, which had been passed down, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Or... Place your penny on the drum and pearly gates open and in strolls mum. Luther was so disgusted with this that on the eve of All Saints Day, 31st of October, 1517, he nailed to the church door a list of 95 theses to debate over the matter of indulgences. Why? Because the next day was All Saints Day and everyone would be turning up to get you know, the dished out merits of the saints that were on offer. So let's pause. It's important to note that at this, this stage, Luther didn't want a reformation or a split. He wanted an internal debate about the abuse around indulgences. In his mind, there was one church, and the idea of a split would have been alien to him. He wanted to reform the existing church, not start a new stream. However, things got quickly out of hand because as Luther pushes back, he realizes the corruption in the church runs deep. And before long, Luther has many enemies, was being defamed as a heretic, and would soon be excommunicated from the church for challenging the Pope's authority by appealing to the Bible as his final authority. It all comes to a head in June 1520 when Pope Leo V issued a papal bull ordering Luther to recant of 41 purported errors found in his 95 theses or be excommunicated. A year later, January 1921, we have a council called Diet in a place called Worms, where who is presiding but none other? It's a great name, isn't it? The Diet of Worms. You all want one of them. Um, you've never heard of that one, have you, on the TV? Uh, if you want to lose weight, have a Diet of Worms. Okay. Um, a diet and worms is just a council in a place called Worms. Who's presiding over this? None other than the most powerful man that has ever ruled the earth. He has had more of the earth under his power than anyone before or since, George V. Isn't it amazing 
that the most powerful man on the earth turns up to preside over this issue. And he tells Luther that he must recant and they're going to burn all his books and all this. And Luther asks for time and it's a fascinating, you know, it's amazing to, to read. And, uh, but at the end of it, Luther famously says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. I excommunicate me, burn me at the stake, but my conscience is clear before God and what I think the Bible teaches. Now Luther wasn't hanging around and he had to flee because they were going to lynch him. And he then gets kidnapped by a guy called Frederick the Wise. He thought he was being kidnapped to be killed, who wanted to protect him. And he takes him off, I think, to Saxony. And then he starts writing more books um, because this guy, Frederick the Wise, had mercy on him. So began a remarkable revolution and reformation, which no doubt was only possible because the printing press had just been invented 50 so years earlier. So for the first time in history, Literature could spread like wildfire. People could read the Bible in their own language. They could read what Luther was writing. It wasn't just for the academia. And they didn't rely on the popes and the priests to interpret the Bible. They could actually read the Bible for themselves. Now, if you want to read more of the history, I can put you in touch with some great resources. What then crystallized in Luther's mind were two key principles, the two key principles of the Protestant church and the Reformation, of which I still think the splits are all about. The first one is this. Where does authority lie? With the Bible or with the Pope? That's what Luther had suddenly quickly realized when he pushed back. The second one, how is one justified before God? By faith alone or by faith and works? And these two principles underline everything else. So before I unpack in a little more detail the theological differences, I want to pause again on a very important point. As I said, Luther, his original intention was not to split the church or reform it. He just wanted an academic discussion on indulgences and some of the abuses. What he found as he pushed back is he was being silenced over what he thought the Bible actually said. And that has normally been the case in nearly all other church splits. Someone goes, I actually think the Bible says this. And someone says, well, I'm not sure. And if they're not allowed the freedom to express it, they normally have to go and start their own network or whatever. But here's something else. The re- this is so important, and I don't want to seem like I'm too negative, you see. This is a really key bit of history. The reason the Roman Catholic Church was in such a bad place was that the Black Death had just swept Western Europe and had been one of the most devastating pandemics in human history, resulting in the deaths estimated of 75 to 200 million people. A third of people died as a result. But here's the thing. The death rate among the Roman Catholic clergy was 90%, not a third. Why? I think I was talking about this on one of the tables earlier in the course. Because they were full of compassion. They were obeying the command of Christ to go and love the poor and serve the needy. And, and you know, go and uh, you know, give dignity to those that are dying and all kinds of things. So they went and engaged with the biggest sufferers, contracted the disease and died. So who's left? 10%. Who are the 10%? They're the insincere ones, the ones that don't have great motivation, the ones like Tetzel who are in it for the money and the indulgences. They're not in it for the real reasons. So the church falls into the hands of really bad, corrupt, ill-motive, or even just lazy and passive leaders. So no wonder things were so bad in the 14th and 15th centuries for the Catholic Church. All the good people died, if I can put it like that. And again, that's another reason why churches and new denominations come about. Because the existing establishment has become so corrupt, either in doctrine or in morality, that the, the devoted followers who are reading their Bibles go, I can't trust and respect this. We need to do our own thing. So let me pick up on six 
theological differences that are underpinned by these, well, we'll talk about the first two. Firstly, oh, they've all popped up at once, you have them for free. Authority. Everyone has agreed, Catholics and Protestants, that Scripture has the final authority. But the Catholic Church placed church tradition alongside Scripture and, it, and, and, and claimed the exclusive right to interpret the Bible. The reformers, people like Luther, however, rejected that notion that the church establishes the authenticity of the gospel. It's the other way around. The gospel establishes the authenticity of the church. They were happy to learn from church tradition, but when push came to shove, scripture alone is the ultimate authority. So for Catholics, you have the idea of papal infallibility, in that the Pope has the final say on interpreting the Bible. So the Catholic Catechism today states, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments and devotion and reverence. Whereas Luther and the Reformers and those in the Protestant tradition say scripture alone is the final authority that we can learn and respect and use church history. So what do you think? Is the final authority with the Bible or the Bible plus church interpretation? What's interesting to me, for many Christians I know, is that the issue is not the Bible versus the Pope. It's the Bible versus experience. I believe what I experience. Or the Bible versus feelings. I believe what I feel. Or the Bible versus modern culture, I believe what most people believe. Or the Bible versus what works, I believe what works and what will make me happy. For most Christians today, regardless of denomination, the issue of authority and the place of the Bible is very much still up for grabs. So that's a question for all of you. Where is your authority in life? How do you make the decisions about what you believe and how do you live? Uh, is it from the Bible or another resource? Secondly, let's talk about justification. How are you made right with God? As I said, the Roman Catholic idea is that God's grace through the sacraments and through confession of sins to the priest is infused to us and we become righteous as his grace works in us. So in effect, it is grace, it's faith plus works. You are right before God by faith, but then you have to exercise that and work at it to make sure you're justified. Luther thought our sin was so great that no amount of trying hard enough could make you right with God. But instead, we trust that God imputes righteousness to us rather than something that develops in us. He gives it us. So Luther wrote a book in 1920, dedicated to the Pope. Have you ever written a book dedicated to the Pope? Called The Freedom of a Christian. In it, he told a story of a king who marries a prostitute. Luther's allegory for the marriage of King Jesus and the wicked sinner. When they marry, the prostitute come, becomes by status a queen. It's not that she made her behavior queenly and so won the right of the king's hand. She was and is a wicked harlot through and through. However, when the king made his marriage vow to her, her status changed. Thus, she is simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. In the same way, Luther said that the sinner, on accepting Christ's promise in the gospel, is simultaneously a sinner at heart and righteous in their standing with God. What had happened, he said, was a joyful exchange in which all that she has her sin was given to him, and all that he has, his righteousness, blessed in life and glory, is given to her. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness rather than infused righteousness. What was the Catholic Church response to this doctrine? Well, the Council of Trent in the 16th century was the official response to all the Reformation. And it says this, If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of grace and the charity that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent to them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. And that statement's never been repudi repudiated. So you can see there's a big tension 
on how we are justified. Is it a status that we're given as we believe, or is it grace that comes that makes us justified as we work at it? What do you think? How do you get acceptable? How are you made right with God? How would you become acceptable to God? Is justification something that is given you as a status, uh, or do you have to work at it to become justified? Again, regardless of where you stand, many Christians who aren't who do believe in justification by faith alone, day by day, live as if they're justified based on a moral life that is devoted to God. That we feel like God will accept us more if I live a more moral life. So I wonder, what do you think? So they're the two big ones, authority and justification. Let me go to four smaller ones. Mary. While both traditions honor Mary as the mother of Jesus, for Catholics, Mary is not only the mother of Christ, but the mother of the church. She was conceived without original sin, the Immaculate Conception. At the end of her earthly life, it says in the Catechism, she was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all. That's her assumption. These are things that the Bible has never, never uh, uh, teaches, and therefore the Protestant traditions do not affirm. The Catechism says the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, Helper, uh, Benefactress, and Mediatrix, I think you pronounce it. So many Catholics pray to her, or the official teaching, ask her to pray for them. They feel they cannot approach God themselves. And as I said, if Mary, or, or they feel like there's some kind of connection to her that brings them strength. And it, as I said, if it's not Mary, there's other saints like Anne. So what do you think? Are we able to approach God directly? Do we think we should talk or pray to Mary and the other saints? Or ask them to pray for us? Let's move on to the bread and wine. Catholics believe that the bread and wine are transubstantiated in that the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ is there in the bread and the wine. The elements are offered as a sacrifice of Christ's work on the cross. This is not simply a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, but an atoning work. The Catechism says the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The sacrifice is truly propitiatory, i.e. it has an atoning effect. For Protestants, the bread and the wine are symbols of what Christ has done, and we eat and drink in remembrance of him. Question, what do you think? Are the bread and wine symbols, or do they mystically become the body and blood of Christ? Let's talk about purgatory. As I said, those who die in God's grace, but still imperfectly purified, are assured of eternal life, but they first must undergo purification in purgatory. Because of the presence of this intermediate state, the Catholic Church has developed the practice of prayers for the dead. So the Catechism says the Church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Protestants reject this doctrine, as, like all the differences, they find no warrant and ground for it in the Bible. But rather, there is no second chance or purification after death. You either trust in Christ at your death, or you're trusting in something else. The decision in this life determines the next. What do you think? Do you think there is a second chance? Do you think the idea of purgatory is true? Final one, the sacraments. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The Protestant Church has two. For the Catholics, there is the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, and baptism. Same for the other two, the Protestants have two. And then there's penance, holy orders, marriage, confirmation, and last rites. But I want to say something about penance before I finish, because I think it comes back to the two fundamental issues at stake within the two traditions. And it's all about how you interpret Matthew 4, 17. As I said, 
before, if a sinner wanted to be right before God, they must go and confess their sins to a priest and do penance, and the, 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 the priest would then receive, you know, absolve them. And as I said, there could be a number of things of, of what that penance looked like. Now, up until the 15th century, the Bible that everyone used was a Latin translation by a man who wrote it called Jerome, who's in the, who wrote it in the 4th century. It's called the Latin Vulgate Bible. Now, there's a very important word that is translated differently in every other Bible, and it was a mistake in the Latin Vulgate. Jerome said, from that time, Jesus began to preach, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what everyone read. Well, the priests, and that's what they taught. What Luther and then everyone else since has realized that word should not be do penance. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. The Greek word is metanoia, which means to turn around, to have a change of mind. So it seems that Jesus was not instigating the external sacraments of penance, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but speaking of an internal need for sinners to change their minds and turn from sin. So can you see the two issues that underlie all of these things? What has the final authority? The teaching of the church or the teaching of the Pope as as he interprets the Bible? Is it the Bible in the hands of the average man or is it the Bible in the hands of the, the, the councils. Secondly, how are we made right by God? By repentance and faith, and just faith alone, or as it were, or through faith in God and then living a good life as his grace is given us. That is the nub of the issue. So let me end with a phrase that has helped me navigate these issues just in terms of day by day. And no one knows where the phrase came from. Well, people claim, but I'm not sure anyone knows. But it's a beautiful phrase. It goes like this. Oh, there are the two issues. In essentials, Unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. There's so much we can dispute and debate, but this is helpful. What's essential? And we must unite around it. For me, central things are the authority of the Bible and justification by faith alone. They're essential because I understand that is so key to salvation. Other people might not say that's essential. You have to work out what is essential and then you unite around it. In non-essentials, liberty. We can be flexible over what's called secondary issues that are not to do with the gospel and salvation. So, myself, I've never prayed to Mary or asked Mary to pray for me. But if someone, I have friends that do, want to ask Mary to pray for them, so ask Mary to pray for them, they're not not seeing Mary as a mediator, more as a companion. The the Bible doesn't say we should or shouldn't, but I have no problem. I'm not going to kick up in non-essential. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But if they were to pray through Mary, then I think she's becoming a mediator or only Christ is. That's an essential. So you have to work out what's essential. Uh, And you can disagree with mine. I'm just saying in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And that's what the intro course is about. I hope you've seen that. Everyone comes with a different view, different opinion, and I hope we debate. I even hope we get passionate in our debates. I hope we believe things. I hope we're convicted of things. But we also want to make sure there's charity and grace and uh, friendship and companionship. So should Catholics and Protestants treat each other decently and with respect? Of course. Can we labor side by side on important moral and social matters and other issues quite often? Do both sides admit that there are genuine believers in both churches? On the whole, yes. But are these issues to be shoved under the carpet? I think, no, they're to be talked about. Not in the sectarian way, not in all that way, but in the way that the intro course has been encouraging. What is the theological point here that's at stake? For me, I start with the Bible and what it says about Jesus and what Jesus said about how we can be made right with God. Everything else flows from that. What do you think? 
So here are your questions. What brand are you and why? Do you subscribe to being a Protestant or Catholic or something else or nothing at all? Some of you probably aren't even Christians. So what, what brand do you put yourself in? None of them. Where do you get your final authority in life? Again, that's actually a question for everyone. How do you decide what to believe? What do you think makes you right, acceptable for God? How do you gain God's approval? What are your views on the four other differences? Mary, the bread and wine, purgatory, and the sacraments. And question, what questions do you have about the different brands of Christianity? As ever, these are a guide. These are a starting point. Discuss what you want. If I've, I just want to say the two disclaimers. If I've misrepresented anything or I've got anything accurate, please tell me. I'm not a, I'm not, uh, in my intention is not either of those two things. But if I have, you must let me know. And hopefully this has been you know, food for thought. So we're, we're running out of time in terms of the official night. We've ended in 10 minutes because we had quite a lot of discussion up front. But we don't have to go till 9, as you know. So thanks for listening. And just enjoy your discussions. Table leaders are facilitators. They don't have the right answers. Okay, thanks.